This is Pain Information Network. Important topic today, we're going to talk about depression. Distinct honor to have Dr. Rafael Miguel on. Very well known in the circles of anesthesia and pain medicine. He runs a fellowship program, turning out our future pain management and uh, specialty trained physicians to better take care of you, better take care of the world, make it a better world. He's uh, a true academic. He really is an excellent educator. And he's going to talk a little bit about the, the most important and one of the most common diseases or diagnoses in pain medicine, and that's depression. And you all know that I believe neurobiologically, pain, addiction, and depression are intimately linked. And you really can't make a lot of progress in one if you don't have a grasp on the other. So to be forward thinking in this very topic, it's, it's not... I guess particularly sexy, but it certainly is what is real, and it affects so many people. And just turning the corner on depression can mean the difference between a bad outcome, in other words, not such a great life, and a very fulfilled, fantastic existence where every day you want to get up and and you want to charge at the world. So he does a tremendous talk on this. I saw it yesterday. And I can tell you he's very articulate and a, and you can tell he's a great educator simply by his mastery of getting the data across to people that really want to learn about this. So I'm not going to talk much more about him. He's like uh, an individual that is rare to have on a podcast, but always appreciated. Thanks for your knowledge, and let's get to it. I have Dr. Rafael Miguel with me today, and uh, we are sitting around talking today, almost in a roundtable, about some of the difficulties that pain patients have, particularly with uh, you know, situational depression, anxiety, some troubling problems that they may have, and uh, pain drives them crazy, and let's call it that, pain drives them crazy. So welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Rafael Miguel, as pointed out, and uh, I am trained uh, as an anesthesiologist uh, at Tulane University in New Orleans. Uh, came to Tampa because I grew up in uh, in Florida, in Miami, and uh, came to Tampa th- expecting to be here a couple years, and uh, 30 years later, here I am. The uh, I was a lifelong academic uh, physician uh, and uh, became a full professor in the early 2000s uh, and realized uh, early on that uh, I was interested in pain. Uh, Coincidentally, uh, I moved to the Moffitt Cancer Center, which had just been built uh, and started becoming very active because that patient population has a significant amount uh, of problems with pain uh, and directed my practice primarily to the treatment of what was then cancer pain. uh, And chronic pain not as much until the late 1990s when managed care started with the booklets and the rest. So uh, now I do the whole gamut of of pain and train tomorrow's pain physicians uh, in chronic pain at the fellowship program at the University of South Florida. Well, let's underscore that he's a full professor, very accomplished, and you're uh a very uh, prominent uh, figure in, in pain and medicine and with the American Society of Anesthesiologists. And we're glad to have you. So tell us about what what you're pretty much passionate about is taking care of those that have this trouble. And 
pain doesn't just sit alone. We've talked about pain, addiction, and depression before where uh, they really are so similar neurobiologically that it's unusual for a pain patient uh, or somebody suffering from pain to not have some comorbidity or depression. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It's not uncommon at all. In fact, uh, when we look at the criteria for diagnosis of diseases like depression and, and anxiety, uh, 60 to 80% of these patients qualify uh, for a formal diagnosis of, for example, depression, which is the most common associated uh, psychiatric disorder uh, and the most common neurologic disorder in the United States. So these patients can't be looked at. We tend to compartmentalize the treatment. Uh, the neurologist does what he does and the uh, anesthesiologist as the interventionalist does what he does and the psychiatrist may do what he does. However, uh, realistically, the entire patient needs to be looked at. And while no one is asking anyone to be another uh, specialist, certainly our medical training has lent itself well so that we can uh, make an early diagnosis, begin a treatment plan, and if it's successful, continue down that path. And never is that more true than in the patient that may have a psychiatric disorder because we know that those patients uh, will have more difficulty controlling their pain and will require more interventions and more medication than those patients without psychiatric illnesses. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> it, it really bothers me when patients are, are labeled as, quote, crazy. They're not crazy. They're responding to life stressors, or they may have some underlying problems, even biochemically, and we can do a lot about that. Uh, tell us about that. Well, pain uh, will change you, will change the way you, I mean, just realize if you have your normal headache, you change your behavior patterns entirely. You become a little short with the people around you. Uh, you are tired. Uh, you you have no desire to do anything and you just want to be in a dark room and leave me alone, I, I'm in pain. Well, imagine if this is constant. And imagine if this is uh, something that has lasted years. Now we have a situation where this constant stress of having the pain and interfering with your basic activities of daily life uh, are, are a problem. So um, we have to pay attention to that. We can't just ignore it. Uh, so I, I think that um, taking care uh, of these patients and looking at the particularities of these patients, these patients may tell us, uh, you know, I have I'm dragging and I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning uh, because I'm just so incredibly tired. Well, there are specific uh, antidepressants which work well, but there are some that are activating because epinephrine is raised in these, in these, uh, in, with these medications. And maybe that's the one that would be a better choice in some of these patients who are dragging in the morning and still wearing their pajamas at 2 o'clock in the afternoon uh, because they need something to give them that get up and go in the morning, get them out of bed, uh, and have them get back their, their interest in hobbies and activity. Uh, as you mentioned earlier today, everybody should have a hobby. Everybody should have an interest in something. So um, there are particularities 
uh, to each drug. There are particularities to each disease process in each particular patient. Yeah, it's the the biggest problem we have is uh, the helpless hopelessness that these patients have. Not only do they have a pain problem, but they're dumped on by this uh, situational anxiety and depression that is just that, situational. We have treatments, and if it comes to sleep, well, we've got studies for that. We can look at medications for that. But then again, we have to look at the medications we're giving them. Sometimes they're on new medications that are depressive, and uh, I know you can talk on that. Well, the, uh, we may be triggering their, their sedation and their uh, what may be diagnosed as depression, when in reality some of these drugs, uh, they have baggage. Everything has baggage. Uh, when you take a medication, you're going to have a list of side effects. Uh, look at any commercial on TV for any medication. Most of it is, is talking about the side effects that are associated with these medications. So every medication has baggage. Even doing nothing has its risks. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. We listen to those commercials on TV, and by the time they're done talking about the side effects, there's no time to talk about the drug. But honestly, uh, we have to put those within context. We look at each drug with the reward it gives us against the downside. And let's just let's just pick on a few. Um, you know, the the patient comes to you, and they they. They look at you like, again, you're the light at the end of the tunnel, and they hope you are in a truck, and they say, I am sick of hurting. I, I just don't want to go on. What do you do? How do you handle that? Well, that, that's, an, that, that's an excellent point. The, uh, the patients will blame everything on the pain, and it, that's very typical. The patient may very well be right. However, the patient also just may have some psychiatric illnesses because they are very prevalent in our society. The stressors of today's life, uh, of today's job, of, of financial issues at home, of raising kids, you know, has never been tougher than it is today. So uh, certainly that individual may, uh, may indeed have psychiatric illnesses that he would have whether he had pain or not. Uh, so we, we need to uh, identify these patients, and we need to start them on a particular course of therapy, which should definitely include uh, psychological counseling, uh, because patients can talk things out. Uh, along these lines, uh, men and women behave very differently when they manifest depression and anxiety. Men don't like to talk about it. They see it as a sign of weakness, whereas women are more likely to be very forthcoming about their particular issues, and they actually throw the blame on themselves. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's therapeutic uh, because they talk things out, and they do very well with psychologists who like to talk. So it's not sufficient uh, to just write them for the medication. Uh, the whole gamut of relaxation techniques and biofeedback and mindfulness meditation uh, falls under an umbrella term called cognitive behavioral therapies. And the combination of the medications that we have and the cognitive behavioral therapies are the patient's best 
chance for a dramatic improvement in their psychological condition, which should translate into an improvement in their pain because their coping skills are improved. That's absolutely correct. <clears throat> I think I, I think you touched on a very important point. It doesn't matter what uh, the part- particular specialty is or non-specialty of a, a physician or provider is. It's the communication because the door needs to open. We can usually get you where you need to go or we can handle it uh, to some extent uh, because there's a spectrum of problems from mild, moderate to severe. So if we break it down and we just give some realistic scenarios, say somebody comes to you with a moderate problem, Talk about that. Then maybe you could talk to them about uh, when it's getting a little more severe and, and really concerning for them and the family. Well, the the first thing we want to eliminate is to make sure that the patient does no harm, does no harm to himself or to others. So the, the questions of how severe is this depression, uh, if the patient self-manifests that sometimes I just want to end it all, well, then that's a good topic for conversation. Uh, it's something that we need to uh, elicit from the patient. How serious are you about this? Do you have a plan of how you would do things? Uh, many of these patients are is just bravado and acting out and frustration uh, is showing its, its, its ugly uh, face. So uh, they may not have a plan. They just say that. Uh, I'm sick and tired of this. I just Some days I just want to end it all. And so we ask them, you would want to end it all. Well, how would you do that? And then you realize that they're just talking. Uh, they're not really, they have no plan. Uh, they have no real desire to do that. And they'll even tell you, well, I'm just talking. I'm not really serious about it. Or, but if they have a plan, and if they say, well, you know, I have a gun, and I have it loaded, and uh, I'm getting my affairs in order uh, because I'm seriously uh, doing this because I just can't take this any longer. My kids are already grown up and out of the house, and they're well taken care of. Uh, so I think it's a viable option for me. You see, this person has a plan, and this person needs immediate attention and uh, maybe a candidate for inpatient therapy at that point. Exactly. You had a really good lecture yesterday and made a very good point. And to family members who sometimes say, well, it's, it's not really going to happen, don't say woulda, shoulda, coulda. Uh, there's lots of resources out there, and communication is the key. What you brought up yesterday about uh, pill hoarding, and then the potential seminal event that takes place at a later date is planning, isn't it? That is, absolutely. Because uh, it, not, not atypically, we write for a 30-day supply. We have the patient come back in 28 days uh, because it, the calendar works out easy that way. And the pill hoarding technique uh, is something that patients have brought up, and they they will tell you, uh, you know, I can save up my pills so that I've got 20 days of medication, 25 days of medication uh, at the end of a year, and I can just take all those medications and end it very quietly, very peacefully. Uh, so that's a plan that needs to be addressed. And we can help this patient. Uh, we can help their pain. But they have to realize that uh, that not just the pain is going to solve all their problems. They need help coping with everything else, all the stressors of life, and whatever possible incapacitation uh, may have happened because of, of the pain. 
for example, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. We have a lot of returning uh, uh, soldiers from Afghanistan and, and from Iraq, and um, many of these have had uh, traumatic injuries, and, and that is very hard for them because their lives have changed forever. But certainly there's uh, opportunities to uh, improve their condition, improve their pain, and improve their outlook on life. And that's right. Um, it's a, a difficult uh, task we have to balance uh, effective pain treatment against the potential risk of, a, of an event, like uh, an individual says, I've had it, and they take a handful of pills. So if there's available family members, how do you get them involved? The family members, I cannot overstate their importance. Uh, many family members have asked me, uh, you know, I'm going to go to the bathroom, and then they will motion to me to go outside and speak with them. And then they'll tell me, he, he's not okay. He's constantly depressed. He just lays on the couch all day. All he does is negative thoughts and negative. And they'll tell you. So getting information from uh, the family member or whatever caregiver may be available. And we get to know these people because they come with them to their visits. So getting information from them cannot be overstated. Uh, it is critically important uh, because it's another source of medical information that the patient may not be forthcoming about especially our, our male patients who don't like to talk about these issues uh, since they see them as a sign of weakness. Yeah, and, you know, I've got I've to kind of lay it out because we are snowflakes. Not one of us is the same. And to, to the gender issue, for example, the World War II vet or the, the veteran of a, a major conflict, um, yeah, they're going to have baggage, but they may say, I'm okay. That's a personality they have. And then there's the other individual who is um, some organic depression, has lost their job. They're in their 30s, and they feel helpless, hopeless. Their wife just left them. They're two different types of people. So take this, this younger guy and tell me what you do with them. He says, Doc, I got nothing left. What, what am I going to do? Well, if this is uh, if this is a pain patient, uh, we can't uh, forget our primary responsibility, uh, and our primary responsibility is to take care of the patient, the whole patient. And if we can't provide, uh, aside from the pain, because I assume that uh, all uh, the 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 doctors that are dealing with these patients are qualified pain doctors. They may not feel as comfortable with the psychiatric portion of it. And so there are referrals. We, we practice in an interdisciplinary fashion and get referrals uh, whenever we feel we need them and whenever we feel our own uh, qualities have, have been exceeded, our own qualifications have been exceeded, and the patient needs a, more of a specialist. We can certainly make that initial diagnosis, and we can certainly start them on a path to treatment, uh, but we shouldn't stop there. We need to see these patients in short order, uh, three to four weeks after we start the therapy, uh, and make sure that they're okay with it, uh, and see them back in the office. If they're doing a little better, 
then that's fine. If they are not doing better, however, at that point it's 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 indicated to go ahead and and send that person to a psychiatric specialist or uh, a psychologist, whatever whatever the case may be, whatever one feels that would best help this patient. Uh, because many times talking about the problem uh, helps them understand the issues uh, much better. And that person who is alone, uh, who you said, well. I've lost my job and I've lost my wife or my husband. Uh, that person is at a particular risk because it's depressing to be alone. Uh, it's better to have someone there to speak with and to share things with. Exactly. And co-managing physicians are incredibly helpful because of the synergy. One plus one equals three. That's correct. And, you know, you're in South Florida. And just a comment or two about uh, that uh, that special generation, the elderly, that came from a culturally very different uh, era of denial. You know, pain is biopsychosocial and it has a re- religious cue too. So we've got to walk in one room and then walk in another room and we find this elderly individual who's just fine, I'll be okay. What do you do there? The, uh, the just fine, I'm okay is, is a knee-jerk response. Whenever you ask somebody, how are you doing? They'll say, fine, when in reality, that's not the case. And it's the caregiver that usually volunteers. No, he's not fine or she's not fine. She has a lot of problems. She has this and she has that or he has this, he has that. So, uh, But once that person gets to a certain age and they see their friends and family, including their spouse, uh, disappear from this earth and move on to the next stage, uh, then they look at things a little differently. Uh, It always amazed me how uh, my cancer patients uh, really faced the difficulties at the end of life uh, very so well. Uh, They have come to terms with their mortality. They know that no one's going to get around it. What's the old saying? There's two things you can't avoid is death and taxes. So they've come to terms with that. All they ask from us is not to die in pain. And and it's, it's something that we have to listen to. It's something that we have to pay attention to and make our best efforts to grant them that wish. And part of that is being able to cope with the pain uh, and making sure that their psyche is also taken care of and getting them and putting them in the hands of experts, if need be, to help them with that because they would never have gone to a psychiatrist on their own. Uh, And many times I have to talk them into it. And I said, look, I'm not saying that you're crazy. Uh, I'm saying that you need somebody to talk to. And and that's a reasonable thing, and it's expected, and I'll be in the same boat in a few years as well. So uh, at that time, I hope I have my primary care physician or my pain doctor tell me and get me the help I need. True wisdom, true wisdom. Uh, well, I'm going to end with uh, taking your expertise as one of the top docs uh, in America, and I'm going to throw out a key word. Uh, I want you to do something with that key word. Take this problem, take a patient in pain, and the key word is dignity. Run with that. That's, that's a key word, and that's a very important word. Uh, there's no reason that at the end of life we should uh, not have a dignified end to it. We've lived our entire life, uh, presumably, with some level of 
uh, of carrying ourselves with dignity. And, and just because we are at the end uh, of our lives does not mean that we throw that out the window. Uh, so the patient has desires. The patient has uh, a ways that he wants to proceed with, uh, with taking care of uh, his pain as well as his psychological issues and those need to be respected and we have to find that very happy acceptable medium so that the patient can live a dignified life until the very end well said and uh rafael thank you so much for uh some great words and uh I couldn't let you go uh, without, you know, at least uh, getting some of this for our listeners. Um, your lecture last uh, or yesterday was fantastic, and once again, I hope to have you on uh, soon for our folks. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to do so. I think it's important information, and it's uh, and this whole meeting serves a great purpose to educating more and more doctors so patients can ultimately uh, be treated with the quality uh, that they deserve. Well said. Thanks again. It's such a pleasure to have someone with mastery at a subject and can present it so eloquently that we all benefit. I, I know everybody that listened to his lecture yesterday loved his lecture, and it was well done. It's a very tough subject, but a very common subject. And if somebody can take a common problem, present it clearly, and give us all an opportunity to apply our skills to help you, to help help the listeners. I know we're going to have a better outcome, better quality of life for our folks, and that's what we really want. So anyway, go to paininformation.com. We'd love to hear from you. iTunes, please uh, subscribe. Tell your friends and neighbors. And uh, leave a review if you would. It helps us rank. And this was one of our uh, finest, and I appreciate Dr. McGuell so much. And I hope to have him on again soon. So we'll see you soon, too.